My name is Jeremy Scott, as Nick mentioned. It's my privilege to be here this morning. My wife and I have been uh, praying about our time together today. I've been enjoying the study from Philippians chapter 2 that I have been going over for the last week. and uh, Very thankful to be here. My wife, Anouk, is sitting on the front uh, uh, here, and we hope to get a chance to meet you uh, afterwards. Philippians chapter 2, the text that has been assigned to me the next in the series that you're going through in the book of Philippians, starts in verse 12. I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version this morning. Let us stand together for the reading of God's Word. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or questioning that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. I am glad and rejoice with you all Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. This is the holy word of God. Let us pray. Father, we have read this text of Scripture together. It is more than just words on a page. Rather, these are the words that you have given to us for this hour. And I pray that we put everything aside for a few minutes. Father, I pray that we would focus in on this because You have ordained this. It is not a mistake that we are here this morning. You are a sovereign God. Things don't happen by mistake. And if we're here today, it is because You want us here. And if we're listening and reading this passage of Scripture, it is because You want us to. And so we humbly submit to that, and we pray that your Spirit would take the words that are on this page that were written many, many years ago, and we pray that you would infuse them into our lives, and that we would be obedient to what is laid before us. May we recognize the urgency of which this text speaks to. And Father, Father, I pray we take this very seriously. And so right now, we put everything aside. We have come this morning sinners. No doubt this week, we have sinned against you. We have been selfish. We have been proud. We have neglected to do your will. And we collectively as a congregation ask for your forgiveness. And now we ask for words of life. We have feasted at the table this morning. Thank you. And now we ask that your word would minister to us. These are the requests that we ask because they bring you glory and you honor and you praise. 
For it is in Christ's name we do pray. Amen. You may be seated. Philippians is a tremendous book. Philippians is one of those books where it's very practical. It's, there's a lot there. The, he loved Paul when he wrote this letter. He really loved the church of Philippi. If you want to read how the church started, you'd have to go back to Acts chapter 16, and you'd see in the second missionary journey, you'd see that Paul was on his missionary endeavors, and he stopped there at Philippi, and then there was not a synagogue there, as normally when he would go to a new city, he would go to the synagogue, and there was no synagogue there, and so went down to the river, and Lydia was down there, and there were several, uh, there were other ladies down there, and that's what kind of began the church in Philippi there. Most people think that it's it started in Lydia's house. Lydia was probably a wealthy lady, a seller of purple, she is described. Uh, it is in Philippi that, that uh, Paul and his uh, companion Silas or Silvanus are thrown into prison. And remember that at midnight, what were they doing? They were singing praises to God. And, and you remember that the jailer thought that they had escaped and he was saved, his household was saved, they were baptized. And thus began the church of Philippi. Thus began the relationship that Paul had with Philippi. But you remember, you remember that th- this was a, a, a response to Paul being sovereignly directed. Remember, when he began his second mission trip, if you read in Acts 15, or that's at the end of the Jerusalem Council, but the beginning of chapter 16, you remember that he was wanting to go to different places. Remember, he wanted to go to Bithynia, and he wanted to go to other places, and God sovereignly directed him through the Macedonian call, and they ended up beginning this, this ministry. It was a very strategic place. Philippi was very strategic in many ways. It really began to bring the gospel that direction. That was the, the gateway, if you will. Those people whom he loved very, very much. He calls them, as you read this, as you read this letter, this whole book, you just see the love that comes through. He calls them beloved in verse 12. And now this text that I just read before you is connected to the previous text. That word, therefore, connects it to the previous text. And the command, uh, this command section really begins in chapter 1 and verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or an absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for faith for the gospel. This is the beginning of those commands. Now, in this section that we're going to look at this morning, in chapter uh, 12, uh, excuse me, verse 12 to verse 18, we see that this is the end of that first section of commands. Paul is pleading with his friends to put aside disagreements and strive for unity. We see that theme several times throughout the book. That he wants them to strive for unity. This is what he's asking them to do. He's showing the Philippians that this conduct must be true of them, that their obedience in this way, and he gave the example of Christ, and this obedience must be true of them, whether they have a spiritual leader present or absent. Paul was saying, if I'm here or if I'm gone, I want to know my burden, my desire is that you are being obedient to Christ, that you're striving together for the faith of the gospel. Paul offers in chapter 2, he offers Jesus as the ultimate example of humility, of obedience, and of victory. Because of Jesus' humility and obedience, one day he will be exalted that we see there in verse 9 of chapter 2 and 10 and 11. Jesus one day will be exalted in heaven and on earth and under the earth. I long for that day. I long for the day when the whole world bows 
to my King. I long for that day where, where every knee will bow. And there are some really stiff knees right now. But I long for the day when every knee bows before sovereign Jesus. Because He deserves it. Not because in pride I want to boast and I want to say, see, I was right. That is not it. I would rather I want Jesus to be exalted because of what we remembered just a few minutes ago. He broke His body for us. And that is why He needs to be exalted. Not so I can say, see, I told you so. But rather so I can say, see, my Savior is great. And I long for that day, and we're, 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 we're promised that the day is coming. And in this text, this is what, what Paul is telling his writers or his readers, and he's telling them that this will happen. And all to the glory of God the Father. Now, the central question of the passage that we're going to look at this morning then is how were the Philippians to exemplify the mind of Christ? Or how were they to show evidence of faith? How were they to show that they were truly people of God? The answer, as we will see, is they need to shine very brightly and without blemish in a very dark world. We live in a terrible world. We live in a world that is full of sin, and we live in a world that is very dark without the gospel of Christ. But praise God, God gives light. And God... He has called the Philippians to be light. And God has called Veronians to be light. You and I are to shine brightly in this world. And that will be an evidence of our faith, is if we are shining brightly. Paul does not doubt the Philippians' salvation. He doesn't doubt that they're believers in Christ. But rather, he tells them to give evidence of this. Now, what separates them from the world? What, what causes them to shine in the midst of darkness? We need to do that here. Well, the question is how? And like the Philippians, we here in Verona, we're still in the world, and, and we have no mandate to withdraw from the world. And we don't, we're not told to be recluses or to shut ourselves away in some secluded place. On the contrary, the Philippians and us here in Verona and where I currently live in Rockford, the, the, we are told to have to be in the world and to live in the world and to shine in the world. In the world is our proper place as God's people. We, as a church, are to shine in this dark, crooked, and perverse world. I say that these, as a church, we do because when you look at this text in verses 12 through 18, every command is given to the church. The commands given here are not given to the specific individuals. The reason why we know that is because every you or your and the way it's constructed, it's in the second person plural, which has the idea of you all. Now, in English, we don't have a separate word for a second person plural. You can mean you if I'm talking to you one-on-one, -on -one, or I can say you, meaning you as a congregation. We use the same word. In other languages, they have a way to differentiate, usually by an ending or even a completely different word. In English, sometimes we have tried, or some cultures or subcultures have tried to come up with that. If you go in the South, it's y'all or 
all y'all, right? Okay, so, you know, it's y'all. Is that me or all y'all? Oh, that's all of us. Okay, so, so th- we have some of those, you know, different characteristics there, but it's not very clear. But here in this text, it's abundantly clear that what Paul was writing to you was writing to the church, and he's saying, you as a church. And so this is what he was writing to the Philippian church. If Paul were standing here today, he would be saying, Memorial Baptist Church, you need to shine in this community. You need to shine in the state. You need to shine for the glory of God. This church does. Now you are going through different things and different transitions and you have all these different uh, uh, complexities of life and you have temptations and you have trials and you have persecutions. You have all these things that war against the soul. But as a church, we need each other. We need each other to shine brightly. We need this today. We, 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 we're able to feast together. This is a corporate event here. You can't really have the Lord's Supper by yourself. You can't have baptism by yourself. There are corporate events that God has given to us to minister to us so that we will shine in the community which God has placed us in. So how do we do this? Let's walk through the text this morning, the time that we have together. Number one, shine in darkness by working out your salvation. Shine in darkness by working out your salvation. Now, when you read this in verse number 12, you know, sometimes people can, can take this out of context or they can make uh, theological leaps and come to wrong conclusions. This is not uh, what Keswick theology would say, let go and let God. This is not um, a works salvation. This is not what is being talked about here. Man's role in sanctification, because he's writing to believers, man's role in sanctification and God's role in sanctification are highlighted here. They're both highlighted here. The context, I'm going to put this on the screen for you, the context makes it clear that this is not a soteriological text per se, meaning about salvation, dealing with people getting saved or saved people persevering. Rather, this is an ethical text dealing with how saved people live out their salvation in the context of the believing community and the world. So the issue at hand here, therefore, is obedience. And it connects, remember that word therefore connects it, it connects it to Christ's example and His obedience. And so we are to follow Christ's example. And Christ, He became obedient to the point of death. He was totally submissive to the Father. I've heard some people, they talk about eternity past, and it was like, you know, uh, then they created, the, the God had created man, and then Adam and Eve, they sinned. And then some people describe the events in heaven, and they say that, that what happened then is, is that God and, and Jesus looked at each other, and they're like, man, man made a mess of things, and what are we going to do? And God says, well, you know, maybe I'll come up with a plan. Maybe I'll, well, wh- why don't we do this? Why, why, don't, why don't you go down? And I've heard people say this, okay? I'm quoting. They say, Jesus, why don't you go down there, and why don't you, uh, we'll, we'll do the sacrifice thing. You can die for him and everything. Jesus is like, no, God, I don't want to do that. They're not worth it. And God says, no, I think they are worth it. Then there's this debate back, and so finally Jesus is like, okay, I'll go up and ha- I'll go down there, and we'll do this. And then he goes down there. That is absolutely not what happened. Before the foundations of the earth, God in His sovereign plan counted it joy. It says in Isaiah, it pleased the Father to bruise Him. 
And he did that because he loves his creation. He knows that when he redeems, we just sing a song about Jesus, our Redeemer, and he knows, God knows, that when he redeems his people, that brings him ultimate glory because God is a God of reconciliation. And you, my friend, need to be reconciled to God. And here, this is bringing glory to God. And here we have this idea that what Paul was, was saying here is he was saying, shine in this community, work out your salvation, obey, live like you have been changed. We feel this pressure all the time to conform to the world, do we not? We feel this pressure to, to, to value what the world values and to live in such a way that the world sets up for us. And Paul is saying, set that aside. Just work out your salvation with fear and trembling. How do we work out the salvation? Letter A, first of all, we obey with godly emotion. We obey with godly emotion. Look, it says, with fear and trembling. This is the idea of awe and respect knowing that one day we will give an account. One day we're going to give an account before the Lord in, 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 of how we respond to God. Now, if we're in Christ, that's not going to be given an account in the sense of where, whether our um, eternal destiny will be determined because Christ has secured that. But it's this idea of God has... He's given us a stewardship. He's given us grace. He's given us ability. He's given us uh, this, these means of grace through His Word. And how do we respond to that? And then we need to work out our salvation in the sense that we are saved. And so there needs to be evidence of that. And as we're working, as we're shining in this community, and we're, we're, we're letting the gospel show its effects in our lives, as we do that, we need to do that with the respect and the awe that God receives, that deserves. I fear, I fear that so many times we don't respect God like we ought to. I feel like that there's so many times where he does not get the, the, the awe in that, in that fear and trembling. We, we serve God in fear and trembling, not in the, is he going to be a mean God and reject us? That's not what it's talking about here. But rather in that respecting him and, and knowing that he deserves far greater than what we can possibly give him. But yet we do it because we love him and we serve him. This is what Paul is saying, serve him in this way. F.F. Bruce says that this is an attitude of due reverence and awe in the presence of God. It's a sensitivity to His will. It's an awareness of responsibility in view of the account to be rendered before the tribunal of Christ. We will stand before Christ. And this is how we ought to obey God with these emotions of fear and trembling. We don't, we don't obey God out of pride. We talked about this in Sunday school a little bit. We don't, we don't, we don't, we don't obey God out of uh, thinking that He needs us or He needs our actions or our abilities. Rather, we obey God in the strength that He has given and in fear and awe. That leads us to the second way that we obey God. We obey God or we shine or we work out our salvation. We obey God with godly enablement. Now, if verse 12 was all by itself, and verse 13 wasn't there. As, as a preacher, I would have some real difficulty, okay? As a theologian, I would have some real difficulty. 
But verse 13 just happens to be there, so it makes my theology really convenient, okay? You understand the tongue-in-cheekness there. (laughs) But verse 13 helps us understand verse 12. Verse Verse 13 tells us, because if we verse 12 by itself, work out your salvation, it would be very easy then just to say, well, okay, we got to work our salvation. But look at verse 13, it says, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God enables us to do this. God enables us to work out our salvation. This is the beauty of being a child of God, of being his son. This is the beauty of being adopted by God is that he commands us to do things, and then he says, and I'll help you, and I will give you the ability to do it. He didn't just leave us out there. He gives us the ability, and so how does he do this? God works in us, first of all, the will. And again, the way this is constructed has the idea of a continual action. So we can say that God is constantly working in you to will. This has the idea of our desires. Without God taking the initiative, the initiative these Philippians and us here in Verona... We would, they would not have the opportunity to work out their salvation because they would neither want to nor be able to. God is so merciful and we are so dependent on God is that we don't even want to do what is right. We don't even have the desires to do what is right unless God is working in us. That's powerful. Because have you ever felt like just not doing what you knew was right? You just felt like, but then you thought, I need to do this. Maybe it was there was a confrontation between you and your wife, or you and your husband, and you knew that you needed to talk about it. It's easier not to. But you know that's not the right thing to do. And so what do you do? You say, no, I need to do this. I need to persevere. I need to have this conversation. Maybe it's with your children and, and, and you know that you need to talk to them about their spiritual lives and you need to probe a little bit to see where they're at and you need to confront them and say, I'm seeing these patterns here develop in your life. And, 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 and most, a lot of people think, you know, well, that's easy for a parent to do. But if you're a parent, you know that's not always easy to do. And, 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 and you, you sit down and you say, okay, I'm going to have this conversation. Why do you desperately want to do that? Because God is working that grace in you. God has shown you the priority there. So it is God who works in you. He gives us the desire. He gives us the the motivation. God produces both the desire to live righteously and the effective energy to do so. Have you ever wanted to do something right, but you felt like you just didn't have the energy to do it? This is exactly the answer. God gives us He works in us, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Calvin said, this is the true engine for bringing down all haughtiness. This is the sword for putting an end to all pride. When we are taught that we are utterly nothing and can do nothing except through the grace of God alone. I stand here before you as a trophy of God's grace. That is it. You know, before we were saved, I mentioned this in the Bibleship Hour, we're all beggars before God. We're all sinners. The only difference is that if I'm in Christ, I found bread in Christ. 
That's it. I didn't make the bread. I, I, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't, I, and, 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 and maybe I shouldn't say I found bread. Bread was given to me. Let me put it that way. I'm a sinner. You're a sinner. We struggle every day. We struggle with proper motivation. We struggle with, with ideas and we struggle with thoughts and we struggle with, with uh, anger and all these things. And, and yet, if we're in Christ, there's this desire to change. And that's Him working in us. First of all, brothers, sisters, please rejoice with me that God cares and that He works in us. If for nothing else, we could go home today and just meditate on that principle that God would even care. And He infuses desires in us so that He will be glorified and ultimately so that we would be shown great good. So it's 5.30 at night and you're tired. You're, you're coming home from work and you know you need to get something to eat. And, you, and then there's a wanna that night or there's something else going on. And you, I mean, you know, bless the little kids, you love them, but you just don't feel like seeing them, okay? Um, you know, it, but what do you do? You go and you serve because you know it's important. Why do you know it's important? Other people would just say, I'm going to stay home tonight. But we do that because God's giving us that desire. God's working in us. This is God. This is all about God. Secondly, he, not only does he give us the, he works in us to will for the desire, but he works in us to work. Again, present continual action, he's continually working in us. And I love what that tells us is that I need God to continually to work in me to keep giving me desires and keep giving me the ability to work. Because it left to myself, what am I going to do? I'm not going to desire the right things and I'm not going to work for God. He continues to work in me. So divine initiative calls for human response. And so this is how God's sovereignty and his enablement and man's responsibility come smack together in this text here. Is that, yes, God's working in me. Yes, God's putting desires in me. Yes, God's motivating me. But I still have to get in the car and drive to church to help in a wander or whatever it is. I still have to do those things. And God is the one who is giving us those abilities. Human energy can never accomplish the work of God. Yet God does not accomplish His purposes without it. Did you get that? Human energy can never accomplish God's work. But God does not accomplish His work without it. The two function in perfect harmony. The reason why is because this is how He has set it up. Remember when Jesus in, uh, in uh, John chapter 11, remember when he went and he heard that his friend Lazarus was sick. Remember this? And he waited a couple days to go. And by the time he got there, Lazarus was dead. And Jesus, he called forth. He said what? He says, Lazarus, come out. And what he was doing, Jesus was doing there, he was, he was raising the dead. Literally, that was the work of God. But Lazarus still had to come out of the tomb on his own strength, on his own act, rather. But his life had already been restored by him who is life. Another example, the Hebrews, they walked every tired foot of the distance between Egypt and Canaan. They had to physically walk that. Yet, to God, it is justly ascribed their exodus from one country into the possession of the other. 
They had to do the journey, but it was God who caused their shoes not to wear out. It was God who caused them to keep going even though there was complaining along the way and discouragement along the way. As they're going through the desert, they probably had to bury people that they loved in the desert there, but they kept going and their clothes didn't wear out and their shoes didn't wear out. Why? Because God was enabling the journey that they were required to do. So God works in us. He works in us. For His good pleasure. <clears throat> we see that concept in Ephesians 1. I don't have time to go there. But you read through Ephesians 1 and we see how all things are for His glory. And for the, in Romans chapter 1, for the sake of His name. A theology of missions you read in Romans 1 is for the sake of His name. We don't do missions because there's 20 billion people or whatever it is that, that are without Christ. That is a good reason, but the reason why we do missions according to Romans chapter 1 is for the sake of His name. And we see this is all about God. And we see that God is working in us for His good pleasure. And I want to explore just for a second, I, I don't have much time to go there, I weighted this message heavily on the front end, so don't worry uh, for the next two points. But uh, I know some of you are looking at your watches, and, you know, um, but don't worry, I weighted it on the front end. Um, but... Um, I want to explore just for a second this concept that it says, for his good pleasure. Please, I say this to myself and to you, my brothers, my sisters. Let us not be complacent about the fact that God receives pleasure from sinful men and women. God receives pleasure by working in us. God receives joy. Let's we think of God as this transcendent God who's up in heaven with no emotion whatsoever. Rather, the prophets talk about that He rejoices over His people with singing. This is God in His emotion. And God takes great pleasure when we work out our salvation in His enablement. That's an amazing concept. We don't have time to fully break that down, but later on, meditate on that, beloved. Meditate on the fact that God, sovereign, holy, righteous God, receives pleasure from us. That, that just ought to blow our minds. God is working in the Philippians, that is what Paul was saying. There. He's working in you. Work it out in that strength. God is working here with you. Work it out. Whether Paul, it's interesting, Paul says, whether I'm here or I'm away, whether there's a spiritual leader present or away, you are responsible, Philippians, to work out your salvation. Memorial, whether you have a senior pastor or not, you are responsible to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, Memorial, to will and to work for His good pleasure. Shine. We live in a dark world. Shine. A couple of concepts I just wanted to tease out with this is that we are being saved. This is part of our sanctification process in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, verse 18, we see that it says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, 
It is the power of God. Now, it's perfectly legitimate to say I was saved, past tense, because we are positionally in Christ. Romans chapter 5, or Romans chapter 8, excuse me. Now, therefore, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. So we are positionally in Christ saved. But that's justification. Sanctification is this concept right here in 1 Corinthians 1, that we are being saved from our sins. This is what Paul was talking to the Philippians, saying, show that you are being saved. Work out your salvation. And then your progress should be evident. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 15 says, practice these things, immerse yourself in them, so that all may see your progress. Not in a boastful sense, but it should be evident that we are growing in the grace of God. Shine, Memorial. Shine in this community by working out your salvation, not in pride, but with fear and trembling. Number two, shine by getting along. It says in verse 14, Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless, innocent children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. The word order here puts the emphasis on all things, so all things you should do without grumbling and complaining or questioning. Now this must have been a problem because in chapter 1, verse 27, we're told that you need to strive for unity. We're told in verses 1-4 through of chapter 2, if you have, Wayne talked about this last week, if you've received these things, then basically be of one mind, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, all these things. And then here in this text, we see this idea of unity or getting along. Later on in chapter 4, Paul mentions two ladies who obviously had a fight going on, Iodia and Syntyche. And so uh, there must have been an issue here with this Philippian church. And he said, shine in the dark world that you live in by getting along. Questioning has this idea of petty dialoguing that calls everything into question. There's an allusion in this text here to Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 5. I put the text on the screen for you there. I think it's on the screen. It says this, They have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are crooked and twisted generation. Let me set the context of that real fast for you. Moses is retiring. And he's turning it over to Joshua. Joshua is then uh, uh, setting things in order. He's commissioned. Moses then gives what's called the Song of Moses in chapter 32 of Deuteronomy. And he basically talks about his experience with Israel. And this is how he describes Israel. They have dealt corruptly with him, God. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are crooked and twisted generation. This is his experience. They were grumbling and complaining. Now the thing that they complained about the most was leadership. So the allusion to this may may have been that they were complaining about leadership. In Philippians, it may have been about leadership. It's interesting, some people say that that's the reason why uh, Paul broke from his normal greeting in verse two, verse 1 when he said, with the overseers and deacons. He doesn't do that with anyone else. They think that maybe he was highlighting his support of the leadership there. Maybe this is why that, that Paul did that. Perhaps such the same criticisms that were being found in this text that Paul was dealing with were about leadership. We don't know. But we need to shine in the darkness by striving for unity and by just simply getting along. Letter A, contention kills our effect in our community, our effect on our community. Contention kills our effect on our community. 
I, taught, I, I went back to Deuteronomy 32, those are struggles there that they had against leadership, against unity. Philippians struggled with unity. People today in churches struggle with unity. But there's, a cont- there's a continuity of God's people. Same struggles, same solution. Obedience to Christ. And what he's saying here is he's telling them, he said you need to be examples, that you be blameless and innocent. He says that you need to be examples in the midst of the world that they live. They need to get it right. They need to obey. This is all about obedience and in response to the example of Christ's obedience that we talked about last week. If, if they get it right, if they, if, if they are obedient in this respect, they will be examples to the pagan culture of Philippi and to even the world. We are, sometimes we think that complaining isn't that big of a deal or grumbling or questioning in an ungodly way isn't a big deal, but, but it is. One author says, we are prone to think that the way we relate to our brothers and sisters in Christ is a matter of indifference and that we are entitled to a little grouchiness from time to time. Maybe we didn't eat, maybe we didn't have our coffee or whatever it is, so we're entitled to a little grouchiness. Even more, we can convince ourselves that a critical spirit is a virtue. Have you ever met someone who, who they thought that they, that was their spiritual gift from God? Is it be critical? You know, oh, well, God's giving this great insight to point out what's wrong with everybody. Um, Convince themselves it's a virtue. In fact, such conduct impedes the working out of our salvation. If we're going to shine in this community, we have to be a people who are not grumbling and complaining because it's a denial of the sovereignty of God. And it's, a, it's, a, it's a really a theology of unbelief. It can ruin our own soul and the soul of another in the church, and it can make the church a cultural joke in this crooked and twisted generation. Contention kills our effect in the community. This church becomes known as a church of contention. No one will want to be here. I, I, how many churches throughout history has that happened to? Where that church, the church just becomes known that they don't get along. The church just becomes known for divisiveness, a divisiveness, and for church splits. It kills the effect in the community. And what this is what he's saying: you need to shine brightly, get along. Because that brings honor to God. Contention is overcome, letter B, is overcome by being word-centered. We see that in verse 16, holding fast to the word. Or literally, it could be holding fast or holding out the word of life. Become word-centered. This tells us how we do the things without grumbling and complaining. This is the idea of bringing the word out to other people because if we're constantly confronted with the lost and we're going out and we have a view of other people, we're not looking simply on ourselves. There's no room for pride. There's no room for selfishness. There's no room for contentions with each other if we're working together towards the same goal. And we're, in, in, in this church has been placed in this community. It's been here for a couple years, okay? Um... So it's been put here for a reason. Why? So a club can be here? No. So that this community of Verona can know the wonderful, glorious, saving grace of Jesus Christ. And that message will get clouded if it's being told by people who just can't get along. Shine by getting along, Paul was saying here. Show the world the power of the gospel. Very quickly, last point. Shine in darkness by rejoicing in God's sovereign plan. Shine in darkness by rejoicing in God's sovereign 
plan. He says, even if I am to be poured out, verse 17, as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. God's plan isn't always 100% clear. He says, even if. He wasn't certain. Uh, Nick and I talked about this, where sometimes in the text of Philippians, we see that Paul thought he was going to be martyred. In other sense, he says, oh, I'm convinced God's going to deliver me. Here he says, well, even if this happens, it seems like Paul was going back and forth. And so sometimes God's plan isn't 100% clear, isn't abundantly clear. That's okay, because we operate with the data that God does reveal. The world needs to see this, though. The world needs to see that, that there's this idea that Christians have it all together, that their ducks are all in a row. In fact, uh, one person, it's slipping my mind who said this, um, he criticized Christianity. He said, uh, Christian, uh, Christianity is for losers, is what he said. This was a couple years ago. Um, he was obviously an unbeliever. And uh, man, evangelical world got really upset by this. And the fact of the matter is, I wanted to say, He's right. <laughs> I'm a loser. I need God to save me. I need that. So the world needs to see that Christians don't always have it all together. Life is not a neat, tidy package. We live in a messy world with messy problems. We struggle with some of the same sins that everyone else struggles with because it says that it's common to man in 1 Corinthians. But the difference is, the difference is, is that we have Christ. So even if we are not 100% sure of what God's plan is in the next step for our lives, we can rejoice that He does have a plan and we can prepare as best we know how given the data that is available to us at the moment. Remember, this is a corporate command here. Rejoice in this. And Peter, excuse me, Paul was saying, I don't know what's going to happen, but I rejoice. God's plan, letter B, is often inexplicably good and should produce gladness and rejoicing. He says, it just produces joy in me, and it should produce joy in you. Later, I don't have time to go through the book here, but he talked about how his imprisonment, even his imprisonment, was being used for God. His imprisonment was being used in such a way that the Caesar's household was given the gospel. And that he talked about earlier that because of his chains, people were getting more bold to share Christ. And so he was saying, it's inexplicably good. It doesn't make sense that I'm in prison, but it is God's plan and it is good. So we shine in darkness by rejoicing in God's sovereign plan. Now in conclusion, a couple application points. We need to be obedient whether there's a spiritual leader present or not. Twice in the book thus far, he says that. Whether I'm here or whether I'm away, you need to do this. So we need to be obedient whether there's a spiritual leader present or not. We live in a crooked and perverse world. What is at stake? Our souls are at stake. Our children are at stake. The kids that go to Awana, their souls are at stake. My daughter, Michaela, Mia, is at stake. My daughter is adopted. We adopted her at birth. She, um, a teenage girl, visited our church, happened to be preaching in 1 Peter chapter 1, talking about trials. She was there with her family. She was a, it was a Christian family. She had fallen to sin, slept with her boyfriend at the local public school. They were no longer together. She became pregnant. No one knew that she was pregnant other than her family. And so when I'm preaching on trials, I mentioned that we were having struggles with barrenness. My wife and I prayed for children for eight years. 
And we went through many adoption attempts. In fact, adopting Michaela was adoption attempt number nine for us. We had two boys that we were going to adopt from Africa. We were one signature away. We were just waiting for the Minister of Health to sign off on it. The judge had already signed off on it. We had our visas. Uh, We were going to go to Liberia to get them. Waiting any day that signature was going to come. Then we got a phone call, and instead of telling us that the judge signed off on it, we were told that the country shut down, and we lost the two boys. About a two-year process. I still carry a picture with those two boys in my briefcase. I love them. I never met them, but I love them. I pray for them. I pray that I'll meet them in heaven one day. Well, so I was sharing that little story. I was sharing, the, I was sharing my struggle a little bit and saying that sometimes when we have another adoption attempt come up, and then it would fall through, I would say, God, are you, are you just toying with us? Are, are you, you know, what's going on? And then I'd say, no, God, that's not how you act. And there's a struggle my wife and I were having. Well, that, that family went home, and she talked to her mom the next day. She said, Mom, you know, because they, they didn't understand anything about adoption. They said, if I do decide to give up this baby for adoption, can I choose who gets the child? The mom said, well, sure. She said, that pastor who was preaching, she said, it's, it's become apparent to me and clear to me that this child is in my womb for them. And so for the next, little, next, next seven weeks, they prayed about it, didn't tell anyone about it. Finally, they, they clued us in on it. We had no idea. So the girl was in my Sunday school class. I'm teaching her. I had no idea that my daughter was in my Sunday school class. But um, she, she, she's there, and um, they, they asked us. They were really concerned about how the church would respond to this, though. She was a teen girl, pregnant. How would the church respond? I met with one of the other pastors, myself, and uh, we coached the church through it. Church was just marvelous through it. Birth mother asked us to be in the, op- in the, in the delivery room when we, when we were there, so I have seen, I saw my daughter born, um, heard her first cry, saw the first time she opened her eyes. Um, this was a tremendous miracle of God. My daughter needed a church to shine brightly. My daughter needed my church to embrace the birth mother. Michaela needed, she needed the birth mother to feel safe, to feel like that she wouldn't be an outcast. My daughter needed, and the birth mother needed a church that would just shine brightly. Because we live in a dark world. The world, my friends, they would want want my daughter to be aborted in a situation like that. But that's not what happened, praise God. Because there was a church who shined brightly. And all they did was just show Christ's love. Memorial, please. Shine brightly in this community. Father, I commit these people to You. I commit this church to You. May we shine brightly. Souls are at stake. And I pray, Father, I pray that we would put aside our pride and our sinfulness and that we would reflect the glory of Christ.
here. May we work out our salvation. May we put aside petty disagreements and just get along and rejoice in your sovereign plan. For it is in Christ's name we do pray.